what are you afraid of? Uh, my wife may have a newfound fear of scorpions after last summer. She found a scorpion in a towel of hers, and uh, so I would imagine that she uh, does not enjoy scorpions so much. I did not enjoy spiders for the longest time because I was bit by a spider in my chest in my sleep. I also, if you want to hear me scream like a girl, uh, you can uh, put me around a cockroach. I don't like cockroaches. And so, yes, we've got, a, we've got an amen in the back and a raise of the hand. Perfect. Uh, can't stand cockroaches, and I don't know what you're afraid of, uh, but something tells me that when you get afraid of something, you will rearrange your life to get away from it. So how many, just show of hands, how many of you are afraid of snakes? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Uh, apparently, all of Pecan Grove is afraid of snakes because you put it on Facebook a lot. Uh, how about spiders? Anybody? Yep. Okay. How about heights? Oh, yeah, we're getting there now. Um, okay, so, so some of these things are legitimate fears. Uh, some of them are like an figment of our imagination. Like we just imagine the worst case scenario and then we will avoid that at all costs. One of my favorite shows on TV, I'm ashamed to say, is Impractical Jokers. And so I love that it's now syndicated and um, I can watch it every day from 6 to 7 p.m. on uh, channel 57 because I don't have cable. Uh, yeah, now we're, now we're talking. So anyways, one of the guys, his name is Sal. If he gets near the edge of anything, he flips his lid. And he has to jump back uh, like the edge of anything. And so it's kind of funny watching him uh, freak out. I love that show. My wife makes fun of me now. She's like, you're addicted. You're addicted to those four men. I don't know how, but you're addicted to those men. Because uh, the things that they're afraid of make me, make me laugh a little bit. Um, so the question is going to be before us today, what are you afraid of? There's actually 19 million people in America that were diagnosed officially with a phobia of some sort. 19 million of us. I would imagine most of us are not uh, officially diagnosed with some sort of phobia, but there are many of us in this country that are and have been, and some fear is good. Like uh, some fear that we have, like being afraid of uh, our kids being hit by a car, uh, we're going to make sure that they don't go in the street. Uh, that's a good fear to kind of put into them. It's a good fear to go, hey, uh, if, you, if you fall and you hit your head, it's, your, your life will be forever changed. Just put the helmet on. It's going to be okay. I know you don't look cool. I know there's an extra shell on the top of your head, but that thing's going to actually keep you safe. There's a good fear in that. And some of it uh, helps us. The Bible is riddled with the command to do not be afraid. Fear not. Most of the time it is accompanied by someone, or many times is accompanied by someone trying to worship an angel. Anytime the angel shows up, the first thing the angel says is, don't be afraid. And the next thing that you usually read is Peter or whomever or Jacob trying to worship an angel. There's, there's, this, there's this great correlation between fear and worship. And that correlation is whatever you fear, you will worship. That's a truth. Uh, that's why we are to fear only one thing. There's only one thing that we are called to fear in the scriptures and it's God himself. He says we're called to fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is a good thing to fear some things, particularly God himself. So there's a lot of things to be afraid of in our day and age. Uh, Crystal just told a story of her, of her fear of, of personal rejection. Uh, really, that's what that story is about. 
of, of approval, of failure, our kids' safety, their education, their well-being. Are they going to have enough fun this summer? Will they have good memories with mom and dad? And if we're not careful, we will wrap our lives, that is to say, we will worship our kids, our approval, our success, whatever it may be. And why is it that we will do that? Because again, whatever you fear, you worship. You see, fear exposes insecurities, Fear exposes insecurities and causes us to rearrange our lives to gain that which you do not have. So an example of that, if you fear uncertainty, you're going to worship security. If you fear harm to your children, you are going to worship their safety. And so somebody asked me long ago, not long ago, when they were moving into town, why is it like, it's kind of a chore. Like, what is it about playdates? Why do we have to do playdates? We didn't have playdates when we were kids. You just went outside and you came home before the streetlights were on and everything was good. Why, what has changed? And my answer to them was fear. Fear has changed. We're all afraid of what's going to happen with our kids. And so we don't just entrust them to the neighbors anymore. Fear. It, it's re, we've rearranged our lives in so many different ways to ensure their safety. If we fear provision for our family. We'll strive to be seen as worth more in the workplace. Our worship is deeply connected to whatever we fear. So today we re-enter the book of John as a church family. What a great thing to be able to do. I love the book of John. I, I, I'm a little sad that we're re-entering and I'm stepping away for the next several weeks. But in our story today, Jesus's disciples, and let's just put us put ourselves in this story as his disciples in this boat. They're terrified. They're absolutely out of their mind, scared, freaking out in the midst of circumstantial chaos until Jesus comes. Until he steps into their circumstance and he says, it's me. So what is it that displaced their fears of these disciples? Because that's what we're talking about today. Displacing fear with faith. But before we get into that, I've got to do some things. I've got to review a little bit. The last time we were in the book of John, actually Carissa was here. It was February the 11th. So we may have slept a few times since then. We've, we've gone through the, the, the seasons of Lent, of Good Friday, of Eastertide, of Ascension Sunday, of Pentecost Sunday. And now here we are in our summer series, re-entering the book of John. And we're right smack dab in the middle of a passage uh, in John chapter 6, verse really 16. So what has happened so far? Well, let me refresh us a little bit. Number one, if you remember, John was written so that you and I may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John 20, 31 tells the purpose statement of the book of John. That you and I, that John wrote this, he says, these things, all of this, he's done a lot of different things, so much that all the books in the world cannot be, contain all that Jesus did. But these things in this book were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one to come, the, the promised rescuer. He is the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all these things were written down so that we would have two things in our faith. Number one, we believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And number two, that we may have life. So this story about Jesus walking on the water showed two things about who Jesus is, that he's the Messiah and that it would give us life. So let's back up a little bit. If everything in the book of John is to build our faith, we've got to kind of go back the first five chapters and just review what we've done very, very quickly. John 1, what do we see? Jesus is the word, right? That's what we saw. That's how John starts this whole thing off. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was 
God, and he came to dwell with humans. John 2, he goes to the wedding at Cana, performs his first miracle, and makes a really good party even better by bringing the kingdom as signified by vats and massive amounts of wine. And if you look at the Old Testament, you see the kingdom being represented with massive amounts of wine and a feast for the king. John 3, we see a guy named Nicodemus, this expert in the law, coming to Jesus at night. And what does Jesus tell him? Everyone must be refathered by our Father in heaven. John 4, we see the first missionary uh, after uh, Jesus gives the gospel to her. And it's a woman, and she goes back to her town, and he changes her whole mindset on what's going to satisfy her. It will no longer be chasing men. It will be instead worshiping the man God named Jesus, that he will be the living water who will forever satisfy her every knee. In John 5, we move on that Jesus, this rule breaker, is compassionate and he will heal no matter the day of the week. And then in John 6, we, we saw the first part of it that Jesus was feeding the 5,000, feeding the masses. And now we step into John 6, verses 16 to 21. I had Troy and Catherine read verse 14 and 15 to give us a little bit of perspective because something is going on here in this passage that if we're not careful, we'll miss it. But my question is this, whenever I ask and whenever I'm preparing for sermons like this, I always ask my question, why walking on water? Like, okay, he walks on water. It's a very familiar thing that Jesus did, but why did he do that? And why is it that just after he, he, he fed 5,000 people, why was it that miracle that all of a sudden they're like, he's got to be our king? Why was it that one? Was it because it was public? Was it because it, was, it, it, it fed so many different people? What was going on here in this particular passage? Um, and so let me just do my best to explain a little bit of the background very, very briefly. There's so much in this but it's worth explaining. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with the miracle of bread and fish. And then we have six verses on Jesus walking on the water. It's almost this break in the narrative. And then we get back from the, 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 the loaves and the fish walking on water. And then we have a long discourse more about bread. So bread, water, bread. What is Jesus all about here? What is he doing? If you'll remember, we just read this in, in verse 15 of John 6, Jesus withdrew from the crowd as they're trying to crown him as their Messiah. And Jesus will not have it. The Bible says they were trying to take him by force. And Jesus has some kind of Jedi mind trick where he's really good at slipping out of crowds and they lose him somehow. They, he did it when he was 12. He's doing it now in ministry. But why is it that this miracle pushed them over the top into knowing it was Jesus who was the Messiah? So if we remember everything in John is so that we will know that Jesus is the Messiah and that in this we will have life, we can then go and go, okay, something's up here. Something really is more than meets the eye. Uh, apparently I'm, I'm referencing all my 80s uh, cartoons today. But the answer is here in Exodus. If we put ourselves on this grassy hill, hungry, desperate for change in an oppressive society where Rome is oppressing us, taking our friends and our, our brothers and sisters to jail really for no reason at all. And all of a sudden we put ourselves on that hill and we wonder what Jesus is going to say next. He's just offended all the Jewish authorities. We wonder what this Messiah is going to do, ne do next. And as Jewish people, we may have heard the story of God rescuing and redeeming his people over and over and over again. 
that the exodus out of Egypt was a part of our dinner table. That was our family discipleship. We put ourselves back in this context with Jesus. And it played out annually every year at the Passover. When we have this little hint in verse 4 of John 6, this is what John says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. He's feeding the 5,000 at, at one of the greatest meals that the Jews ever had when they celebrated the commemoration of their rescue out of Egypt. And after John 6, 16 to 21, and 22 through 40, what we find is that Jesus is, 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 is he'd walked on the water, but after that, Jesus connects the feeding of the 5,000 to Jesus as the bread from heaven. We're going to unpack that next week. But truly that Jesus is the true and better manna. That he says, you guys think Moses gave you bread from heaven? You got it wrong. I am the bread that has come down from heaven to sustain your daily life. That which would not last longer than a day, now will give you eternal sustenance. He is true and better. And so he's painting this picture of of feeding 5,000. He's using that as an object lesson that he's then going to basically say, I am the bread from heaven. But in the middle of all that, he is walking on a sea. And that should remind all of us this great exodus that happened from Passover and then the exodus of God's people out of Egypt that they would walk through the Red Sea. And now we find Jesus walking on a sea. So to remind them of this great historic redemption that God is bringing to his people. They just tried to make him king and he would not have it. But he has to remind his guys, I'm still the rescuer. I'm still the king. So before they hear this object lesson on manna, they got to know what is he doing? He just told us to get into the boat. He, actually, Matthew and Mark will tell us that he, he made them get into the boat and he went up on the mountainside and hung out with his dad, praying, finally, He makes them get in the boat. And here's the whole point in all of this. Though Jesus would not be made our king on our terms, in our time, to do our tasks, to, uh, to free us once again from oppressive regime, whether that was Egypt or now Rome, he will not be made king to do the things that we want him to do. He is still the redeeming king who God promised long ago to rescue us, not just from an oppressive country, No, but eternally rescue us from the eternal oppression of of the slavery that comes from living under the reign and rule of death and sin. See, that's why he's walking on the water. It's a simple enough passage, but he's doing something specific so that those disciples and we disciples can see he's still the king. And so now as he approaches our boat, if we can put ourselves in that boat, scared out of our minds because of the circumstances that are around us, if he can just approach our boat of false security, false destination, and all the wrong things are we securing, he is asking us, and he's asking us today as we enter in, will you trust him? That's what the whole Bible is about. It's about redemption. It's about pointing to Jesus. But it's, if you read over and over again, there's all these different stories. And the basic underlying question in all of the stories are, will you trust his plan? Will you trust him? Will you trust his character? Even when things are crazy, will you trust him? He's asking us that because he's going to take away really good things like being a king from us. And he's going to give us himself. So the question is, is that good enough for us? 
Is Jesus in his presence going to be good enough for us? Because they thought they were headed to Rome with their king all buttoned up and ready to go and do their bidding. And then he puts him in circumstances way beyond their control and comfort all so they can see the real Jesus. Are you willing to go through some things, church, to see the real Jesus that you would have, you would have missed if there was any other way for you to see this part of Jesus, you would have gone through it. But instead, you've got to go through some chaos to see that he's good, to see that he's wise, to see that he knows better than you. I'm saying that my foot is throbbing to remind me, oh yes, there are certain things that we go through in life so that we can see that Jesus is better than whatever we were clinging on to. Or instead of trusting him, Will we do what the disciples did? Will we row harder? We row harder to try and get to the place of comfort, but ironically, we will be without our Christ. Will we begin, will we become afraid and wonder if Jesus is real or if he's a ghost, some figment of our imagination? Or will we finally realize who he really is when he says, it is I, you need not be afraid and finally receive him? Because here's the thing, we have the temptation to row harder, but funny thing is about rowing harder, rowing harder will not get you to your destination. It will not get you to your destination. If we get back into this story, it was dark, they were tired from a day of people, a day of ministry. If you've ever just worn yourself out from about a 12 or 14 hour day of people as an introvert or extrovert, it's going to wear you out and they're tired. And Jesus just did this unbelievable miracle almost at, it was at dinner time and now it's dark. And Jesus says, get on the boat. I'm not going with you. Huh? You want me to do what? Okay. It's dark. They're tired. They get into this boat. They're not with Jesus. The sea all of a sudden becomes rough. Matthew and Mark tell us that he made his disciples get in. Matthew says that the wind was against them, that the, that the waves had beaten against the boat. They were rowing all night. It had gotten dark somewhere, could be anywhere between 6 and 9 p.m. And all the way, it says, until the fourth watch, which is anywhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., did Jesus finally come to them. So anywhere between 6 p.m. and maybe 5, 6 a.m., you're talking 9 to 12 hours of rowing in a storm. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm, but I have a few recollections of a storm. Uh, when I've been out offshore, I remember being, uh, one, of, one of the things my dad did when I was in high school, we went out and we went to the Bahamas and it was great. My, his, one of his best friends had a really big boat and we went out and we were going from one island to the next and we were in this really big boat and you would think it'd be really secure until the waves of the ocean get kicked up and all of a sudden that really big boat just starts being like, it's like a little dinghy. And all of a sudden, you get out into the ocean. If you want to feel your humanity, get out into the ocean when a storm is there. And, and the same thing was happening for these guys in the Sea of Galilee. They were, they were familiar with this sea, but the geography of it was so much that the winds would come down and, and, and make the winds into a vortex. Almost so much to where they just could not handle the seas. And so the Bible says that they were, had gone about three or four miles, which is about half way there, halfway to their destination, uh, Jesus shows up, but they rode and rode and rode only to find their efforts frustrated by the storm. 
And, and if we need reminder of this, this is not a, a passage that is included in the book of John, and so we probably do, but the storms are authored by Jesus. See, in, in, in Mark 4, 35 through 41, it says, even the wind and the sea obey Jesus. This storm that had come upon the Sea of Galilee, although it surprised the disciples, did not surprise Jesus. He knew exactly what he was sending them into, and it was an absolute storm of chaos to flip them from wanting to get to a destination without Jesus to being in the midst of the storm with Jesus. So big picture here is the disciples' difficulty came at the command of Jesus, who had the authority to make things easier for them, but didn't. Why not? I would say this, that no matter the difficulty, no matter the distance, no matter the degree of darkness, Jesus wants us to trust him. No matter what it is, and when he doesn't turn out to be the one who we thought he would be, when he doesn't turn out to be the God who would take away the storm, but instead has sent our storm, what will we do? How will we respond? A lot of us in this town are never more aware that it's hurricane season. It just started. And for the last two or three years, we've, we've weathered some crazy floods in this town. And I know what you're thinking. Surely the odds are we're not going to go through that again. And yet there are many of us that can't get through to that point. We are we're fearful that, oh my gosh, there may be another storm. Friends, God will send what he sends. What will be our response so usually we row harder, usually we prepare more thoroughly, and we try and we try and we try, and we don't get the results that we want spiritually. That doesn't stop us from rowing harder. And what if, what if, y'all, what if God is frustrating our efforts? What if he wants us something in us for something greater uh, for us than getting to our destination without him? See, verse 17, it says that it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus comes to them in verse 21, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What if there's something greater than just reaching our destination without Jesus? Because isn't that our greatest temptation? Isn't our greatest temptation, especially as Americans, to do really good things without Jesus? To be really productive but without the presence of God? And Jesus loves us too much to allow for such things for far too long. He loves us too much to give us what we want, especially if when we get what we want, we don't have him. At some point, Jesus shows up in his time for his purposes in his way. Here, it's on the water. Because he knows one thing about us. We are prone to fear. We are prone to fear and though fear can, can be in the boat with us, fear can be in the boat with us, but it cannot be our captain. It cannot drive the ship. When Jesus shows up, what he's capable of, he's capable of feeding 5,000. He's capable of calming the seas. In John 4, he healed a, a, a man's son, a man's child from far away. If we, if we forget those things about who Jesus is, we will try to regain control over our circumstances and the peace and the presence of Jesus will become optional. We'll get what we want, but we will lose what we need. So Jesus now, he knows this. He knows that sailing with fear as one of our companions is fine, but he also knows that fear is a bad captain for our ships. 
So when we let fear drive, we risk this rebuke. Oh, you of little faith. It's the thing that he actually told Peter in this particular story that's told in the book of Matthew. And the book of Matthew gives us more detail that Peter would see Jesus out on the water. And he says, if it's you, I'll come out there. You just call me out. He gets out there and he loses sight of Jesus and he sinks in the water. Jesus says to him, oh, you of little faith. Me of little faith? I just got out on the water. What about these guys? Oh, you of little faith. Fear has now driven. What about you? When the God of the Bible turns out to be someone you didn't think he could be. When he sends storms, he didn't rescue, from, rescue you from them. But he sends them. When the Savior says hard things, which he's about to say some really hard things, come next week and the week after that. I won't be here, but somebody's going to be here, and they're going to preach on some of the hardest scriptures. You're welcome, Stephen and Josue. They're going to preach on some of the hardest scriptures in all of the Bible. When he says hard things to you, he's going to look at his disciples. Are these, two, are these things too hard for you too, guys? Because all the masses that just came to get fed, they're out. Are you guys going to leave too? When he says really hard things to you, what's going to happen? When he turns over tables in anger in John 2 and then later on in John, what will you do? When he actually will sit in judgment of you. Romans says he will be our judge. That Jesus, gentle Jesus. When he does that, what will you do? See, what do you do? When he doesn't do what you want him to do, what do you do? My guess is that we let fear drive our boat. And when we let fear drive our boat, we start to control our circumstances. There's a great quote that I found this week uh, from a book that I'm reading early on my break. I couldn't wait to get to it. It's a guy by the name of John Tyson. He's a church planner in New York City. He wrote a book called The Burden is Light. This is a long quote, so bear with me. But he puts two things hand in hand, fear and control. He says this, Fear is at the root of our desire for control. I would imagine if I was on the boat that night, I would have wanted control. We have a fear of being left out, a fear of failure, a fear of rejection, a fear that our children will forget about us when they, when they leave home, a fear that loved ones will leave us, a fear that our spouses will lose interest in us, that our beauty will fade, that our jobs will be automated, that our food will cause cancer, that our president will spark an international war that morality will be destroyed, that the market will crash again, that our friends will move away, that the church will drift into liberalism, that our children will drift from their faith. See, when we think seriously about the complexities of this particular time in history and realize all that could possibly go wrong, it is easy to let a spirit of fear grip our hearts. But fear doesn't bring freedom. Fear brings slavery. Slavery to our own power. Slavery to what we can see. Slavery to what we define as good. So I would say, let's just join these disciples in the boat. And as we do, are we scared? Are we scared of what's coming around us? Are we scared that we're ever going to make it to our destination? Are we, gonna, are we scared that we'll have enough money to retire? Or that we'll ever start saving money for retirement? Or that we'll have enough money for our kids to go to college? Or a litany of things that John Tyson just wrote. See, if we gain control or start to try and control things, it will only prove that fear is driving us and we are worshiping that 
which we cannot have control. Jesus is sovereign and he is good. He is in control over all of our circumstances, both, bo- both bad and good. My prayer is that we would truly have a peace that comes. Jesus shows up in the midst of our storm and he says, it is I. Do not be afraid. That is the only thing that displaces their fear and allows them to have faith. Because when we can see Jesus for who he really is, our fears will be displaced. When we see the the, the Jesus who came to shake us up out of what we have defined as life and into what he has come to give us, which is life more abundantly, our fears get shaken out of us by something greater. This King Jesus who will not be tamed, who will not be taken by force to be put over a country, but instead will take us by force and be king over our lives, king over our circumstances, king over the nights in our souls, king over our victories, king over our mundane, nothing to write home about days, and everything in between. This king, who authors it all, can be trusted. This is what is being whispered through that phrase, it is I, do not be afraid. You can trust me. And in the midst of that proclamation is this great invitation. See, at the end of this, at the end of this in verse 21, look what happens with these disciples. After he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Look at the change in their demeanor. And what we think is that this episode with with Peter happens in between verse 20 and verse 21, that he goes out there, he gets on the water, Peter sinks, Jesus pulls him up out of the water, they get into the boat, and in the midst of getting into the boat, verse 21 happens and it says, and they were glad to take him into the boat. And you find out who Jesus really is. Are you still glad to receive him? The disciples... They knew that he was capable of not sending the storm. They knew that he was capable of, 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 of calming the storm. So if we were to go back to those other passages, when he does calm the storm, the, the, the disciples approach Jesus and they say to him, don't you care? You're sleeping. Don't you care about us? See, at the heart of all of our fears is that question. You care about this moment. You care about us right now. You care about when these things are not happening the way that I wanted them to happen, when my, when my daughter rebels, when my son forgets about me, when they don't come to faith. We did everything right. I mean, we were up there every month doing scripture memory. And in their 20s, they just go off and do their own thing. What are you doing, Lord? Will we trust him in that? Will we gladly receive him in the midst of all of that? One last quote. And one last question as we end. We'll get to that cake that Dr. Fong brought. See, in a book that explains a faith that challenges consumer Christianity, the author meets us in the boat. And the author says this. And this is a great quote for us to end on with a question that will accompany it. He says, my secret, our secret, I believe this to be true, is that I want to be relevant. I want to be popular. Every social media feed will we'll, we'll, we'll back that up. I want my desires fulfilled and I want my pain minimized. I want a manageable relationship with an institution, which is what we define as church, rather than messy relationships with real people, which is the church. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events 
rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's what this story is all about. When Jesus wrecks their faith in a God who could have been king over Rome, but instead came to be king over our lives. The end of this story invites us to be glad to receive Jesus, this surprising Jesus who will not be king on our terms to do our bidding. Will we still be glad to receive him into our boat? That's the question I leave you with. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We are grateful. We're grateful that you don't give us the things that we want so that you would give us the greater thing in your son Jesus. We're grateful that you give us the presence of the Holy Spirit to convict us, to guide us, to counsel us. Lord, there's a lot been said that about fear and control and we can even throw in <clears throat> words on like anxiety and worry <clears throat> or even depression and, and trust. And uh, Lord, wherever we are today, I pray, Lord, that we would be honest and open about where we are. That when the darkness falls on us, we would see the goodness and the provision of our God. Even in the midst of whatever storm we may be headed into, whatever storm we're in. But even as, as we're praying right now, we've got someone down the road from us in Rio Vista who is a neighbor of ours who is mourning the loss of a child after a drowning yesterday. Lord, be with that family. That is a storm no one is asking for. We, we mourn with our neighbors that we don't know, and it's going to shake up a whole school tomorrow morning. And so for the teachers over there and the counselors over there and the staff and the faculty and all the students over there that have the Holy Spirit in them, embolden them to speak the truth in love. Would you, Holy Spirit, remind us that in the midst of chaos, Jesus is here. He's here. And we need not be afraid. Through every disappointment, through every disaster, through every darkness, we need not be afraid. So give us faith. Give us faith. It's the only thing that's going to push out our fears. We need you. And we love you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.